we are nearing the end of our series in the book of Revelation. And these last couple of chapters are really going to sum up the book and bring it to a climax and a conclusion. And as we said in the very first episode of Understanding Revelation, way back when, the book of Revelation is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the revelation of Revelation, which is strange because in this latter half of the book of Revelation, he's strangely absent. In fact, the last time that we see a direct reference to Jesus is in the child that is going to rule the nations. That's the son of the woman who gives birth to him in Revelation chapter 12. He's going to rule the nations with an iron rod, and then he's swept up by God from the clutches of the dragon. But here in Revelation chapter 19, that child has grown up. This is Jesus finally coming back onto the stage. He has matured into a man, ready to claim his destiny as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But this grown Christ comes not only to claim victory, but a bride. The scene in Revelation chapter 19 is not only a victory march, but a wedding procession. And this unlocks part of the mystery of the book of Revelation. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 depicts Christ's victory march after Jerusalem's fall, depicted in chapters 17 and 18. He executes the beast and the false prophet, and then inaugurates his reign upon the earth. So this chapter is going to break down into three sections. First, there's a victory cry, verses 1 to 8. Second, there's a wedding invitation, verses 9 to 16. And finally, a bloody feast, verses 17 to 21. Let's look at that first section, a victory cry, verses 1 to 8. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There's a multitude in this chapter that comprises the martyrs of ages past, who cried out for vengeance from the base of the altar in Revelation chapter 6. Now, back in Revelation 6, they were told to wait for God's full justice, which wouldn't happen until the 144,000 martyrs were sealed and uh, shed their blood. So once those martyrs joined their ranks, eight chapters later in Revelation 14, then God's final judgment can come. So now the fullness of the martyrs has been harvested from the earth, and now the final judgment of Jerusalem's fall is here. And that, that the, the pinnacle of that is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And all of this demonstrates God's salvation, glory, and power in both avenging the blood of his servants and judging the great prostitute, Jerusalem, for her immorality. 
And we see that the crowd rejoices that Jerusalem's smoke goes up forever and ever. And this is a reference to Edom's destruction in Isaiah 34, verse 10. Jerusalem does not cease to be a city, so it's not completely destroyed, but it never reclaimed its status as the center of God's religious economy. Remember, in the last episode, we talked about how Jerusalem is like the center of this spiritual world. It's kind of like how Mecca is the center of all the Muslim world, or Vatican, the center of the Catholic world. What happens in that crucial city affects and ripples out into all of the communities of faith that are connected to it. And that's the case with Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple is this cataclysmic event that really shows the fall of Jerusalem as the center of God's dealings and the center of the religious economy and spiritual economy of the world. What we see is also the the 24 elders and four living creatures, which we first met in chapters 4 and 5, they start to uh, take a back seat. Right? They began as worship leaders in the heavenly temple, but now they're following the martyrs as they sing, and they respond with a hearty amen. So that's the, the first group, are the 24 elders and four living creatures now hearing the martyrs sing and going amen. Then there's a voice from the throne. This might signify the entirety of the heavenly choir, and they cry out to God's servants to praise him. So the chorus of both the multitude And the 24 elders and four living creatures provide sort of an intro for Christ, kind of like an announcer presenting the winner of a boxing match. Or rather, maybe announcing the boxer entering into the ring. You know, everyone gets quiet and then you hear this announcement and then people are sitting waiting for the prize fighter to come through and enter into the ring to battle. But in verse 6, we see that this is far more than just a march. It's actually a wedding procession. And saints are walking with Jesus clothed in bright linen, which represents their righteous deeds. Now, this is might be kind of odd. You think, well, is this works righteousness? How can they be clothed in their own righteous deeds? Does God give us our deeds to do, or do we do them? Well, the answer is both. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's a sovereignty of God. God created works prepared for us beforehand, And yet, we still have moral volition. We still must choose to walk in them. God's will and human will are not in competition. God's will actually is the grounds for human will. So God created us in Christ for good works, which he prepared, but we need to walk in them. Our obedience is both our act and God's gift. And then, after this, an angel appears and gives John a message to write down. And this is the wedding invitation, verses 9 to 16. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
invitations play a big part in the Gospels. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable of a king sending invites to his son's wedding feast, but people don't show up. So he gets angry and he destroys those who rejected the invitation and he burns their city. Then he offers his invites to anyone who will come both bad and good. Now, apply this to Israel's situation. Israel rejected their gift, the invitation into the kingdom, by rejecting Christ. And now the Gentiles are streaming in, taking their invites. Christ the groom has all eyes on him. This is why John gets rebuked for worshiping the angel. It's not about the angels. It's not about the messenger. It's not about John. It's about Christ. This is the revelation of Christ. He's the son who the father is preparing a wedding feast for. And all those who reject him reject that invitation to this great feast. The father has gifted his son a bride. And the spirit, which I think here is referred to as the spirit of prophecy, testifies to the son. But there's another twist. At the end of Jesus' wedding feast parable, he says that the king judges those who reject the invites by destroying them and burning their city. This means the wedding procession comes after a battle, a, a time of destruction. And this explains why the groom is described the way he is in the next few verses. Christ the groom enters his wedding on a horse with a robe dipped in blood. That's military language. His eyes burn with fire as he wears a diadem that represents his conquest over all of his enemies. And this military language is the key to understanding what is being portrayed in Revelation chapter 19. He's given many names, faithful and true, king of kings and lord of lords, and word of God. But oddly, one name is known only to him. Ian Paul comments on this and says that knowing someone's name implies mastery. So, for example, in Mark 5, 9, Jesus asks the name of the demons who possess this man. And they answer, Legion. And as soon as they reveal their name to Jesus, Jesus casts them out. Now, the fact that Jesus has a secret name that no one knows may get at that same point. That basically he answers to no one. That no one can have full mastery over him. He rules over all. But perhaps the most striking detail is his robe dipped in blood. In Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 4, God describes himself as the one who tramples the nations in wrath and he splatters their blood on his garments. And what we witness in Revelation 19 is not Christ heading into battle, but out of it. That is why there's no battle scene depicted. Furthermore, the war that Jesus wages is not physical but spiritual. This is why I think Revelation 19 is not talking about the second coming of Christ, but really it's coming, it's a symbolic representation of Jesus bringing his judgment upon Jerusalem and the effect that it's going to have on the false prophet and on the beast. So Revelation 19, if we're following the, the perspective that we're taking, that the majority of Revelation was fulfilled before the year 70 AD when Rome destroyed the Jerusalem temple, and it's about the end of a world the Old Testament world, not a, the, the, the end of the world, that's how that reading follows. But you're going to have to check out some of the older episodes if you want to get caught up on all of that. But, interestingly enough, Jesus, when he fights his war, he fights being called the Word of God. He fights with a sword, which is always representative of the Word of God. So the gospel, which is told in words, is a message that goes forth and cuts people to the heart. You see that in the book of Acts. People were cut to their heart and they repented. And it brings forth either judgment or salvation. It divides people. Remember, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword to divide mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and to divide households because of the truth of the gospel.
And it's through his word that Christ conquers the nations and rules them. And behind Christ lies his heavenly army, comprised of all the saints and the martyrs. But they're not dressed like a traditional army. They wear robes of white. And what does that depict? It's a bridal party. It is Christ who goes before his people and conquers through his word. But behind him is the church. And the church is clothed in the righteous deeds, clothed in the purity uh, of the sanctification that they have in the spirit. This is the way Christ judges and makes war in righteousness. It's through his word, with his church, by the spirit. This is how the Great Commission goes forth into all the nations. This is how the good news spreads. But the good news is bad news for those who reject it. And here we see a very graphic image of those who reject the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Verses 17 to 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh." So we see another angel standing on the sun, and he calls birds to gather for God's feast. Okay, so this is a little odd. But we find out that this food that's going to be served at this feast is the flesh of God's enemies. Okay, it gets even weirder. So this echoes two passages of Scripture. The first is Ezekiel 39, where you see birds gathering to eat the corpses of God's slain enemies. And the second is from the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verses 27 to 28. Let me read this for you. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Birds feasting on corpses symbolizes the defeat of an enemy. I think that's what Jesus is saying here as he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. The feast of God is a marriage supper for those who love him, who accept the invitation. But for those who reject him and reject his invitation, it is a terror. They're going to be the main course. Their blood is going to fill the streets. It's this terrifying image of judgment. Now, as I mentioned before, Christ comes after he has defeated his enemies. That's that's why his robes are dipped in blood. That means that the lineup of the beast, his kings, and the false prophet that we see, they're not an army ready to make war. They're not getting ready to fight Jesus. If he's already dipped in blood, that means they've already fought Jesus and lost This is an army that has been making war and has fallen. Alistair Campbell, in his notes on Revelation, says that Revelation 19 follows the pattern of a Roman victory parade, where the conquering emperor parades his fallen enemies before he finally executes them. I think that's what's happening here. Christ is parading the beast, which represents Rome, and the false prophet, which represents the corrupt priesthood, and he's taking them, And he's parading them as as captives of war before he destroys them by chucking them in the lake of fire and sulfur. It's key to note that the casting into the lake of fire is not the destruction of the Roman Empire, because that continues on for centuries, but rather the abolishment of its alliance with the prophet priesthood. 
with the false priesthood of Israel. So that alliance has been broken, and that's the defeat that we see here. So let's put this all together. You might be getting bogged down in details. We can zoom out. Christ comes as the Son of Man, and he brings the fifth and final kingdom that we see in Daniel's visions, the eternal kingdom of God. And one of the decisive acts of him as king is he destroys the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, ending the old covenant system, proving Jesus as a true prophet, and inaugurating his reign on the earth. Now, there's a detail that the rest of the kings of the earth are not thrown into the fire, but they're slain by the sword of Christ's mouth. That's an important detail. Once again, this is symbolic. The sword from Christ's mouth is the word of God. Some are going to be slain by the sword in judgment, but others will be slain by the sword in repentance. And later on in Revelation 21-24, we see the kings of the earth offering tribute to the new Jerusalem, which might give us a hint that this sword slaying of these kings of the earth may not end for all of them in absolute judgment, but some might be cut to the heart and repent. Perhaps some did repent after seeing the fall of Rome and the disillusion of their alliance with the false prophets. Perhaps. In either case, Christ has gained a foothold into the world by destroying the temple and judging the Rome-Israel alliance of the first century, the beast-false-prophet alliance. But that means there's still one more enemy of this unholy trinity to be destroyed. And that final enemy is Satan, the dragon. Now what we're going to see is Jesus is actually going to bind Satan. He's going to stop him from some of his activity so that his kingdom can spread out through all the world. But how this takes place is kind of odd. But that's a story for the next episode.